Hey, it's Ryan from The Journal. Our daily podcast will be back on Monday, but this weekend we're coming to you with the third episode in our GameStop series, To the Moon. Episodes one and two dropped last Sunday. If you missed those, they're in the journal feed. Last time on the show, the Reddit forum Wall Street Bets learned how to YOLO. I'm going to get rich or die trying. I'm going to go all in. And I'm not afraid of the consequences. This week, we've got the story of the innovators who broke down the barriers to investing and let in the masses. Here's producer Annie Minoff. For decades, there was very little chance of regular people banding together to drive up the price of stocks. Something like GameStop couldn't have happened because most people were not in the stock market. In the 70s, only about a quarter of American families owned any stock at all. Stock picking was the province of rich people and their brokers. It was inaccessible, expensive, and just a giant pain. What was it like to trade a stock? Like, how, how would you actually do it? Oh, this is going to sound like a black-and-white TV show or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's Jason Zweig, investing columnist for The Wall Street Journal. What you had to do was you had to pick up your phone, and if your broker didn't work nearby, you would have to make a long-distance call. You would have to wait for the broker to call you back because he, and of course he was a he, was usually busy. You'd finally get your broker on the phone. Hello. You'd say, I don't know. I want to buy 100 shares of IBM. Um, okay. Your broker would have to check what the stock was trading for, and that would usually take another couple minutes while he called the trading desk and, you know, they called into New York. 100 shares of IBM, please. Finally, your broker would get the stock quote and place your trade. That'll do it. Then a few days later, you would get a little slip in the mail that confirmed that you had bought the stock. Everything took hours, often days, and was extremely expensive and, frankly, frustrating. For GameStop to happen, all of that would have to change. Trading would have to become democratic, open to anyone. And it did. Today, investing is the exact opposite of phone tag with your expensive broker. It is fast, accessible, and practically free. And it got that way thanks to two massive disruptions that together would change who saw the stock market as a place to put their money. So today, we're going to tell you the story of those disruptions and how they laid the groundwork for GameStop. You're listening to To The Moon. This is episode three, A People's History of Investing. This episode is brought to you by Global X ETFs. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with Global X ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. Okay. So I'm going to start with the first disruption to investing. And to explain it, I'm going to tell you about a woman named Gail Cox. 
Gail is not a market disruptor. She is a flight attendant. And back in the early 90s, she wasn't thinking much about investing at all. Until one day, the old-school investing industry literally showed up at her door. Somebody knocked on the door. I opened the door, and there was a very nice-looking man standing there in a, a suit coat and a tie, and he had a folder in his hand. Great facial expression, very approachable. And I opened the door, and he just started asking questions about, um, I represent this company, and have you started to invest in college funds for your children? Obviously, he knew we had children because we had toys out in the yard. And I just thought, no, well, I haven't. You know, and he asked if he could come in, and he was very nice, very slick. The man with the good facial expression told Gail that he was with a mutual fund company. And if she wasn't investing in the stock market for her kid's future, she needed to be. If she invested with him, her money would go into a professionally managed portfolio aimed at saving enough for her kid's college. And I just was not even thinking, well, how much is this costing me? I just thought he was there to be really nice and to offer this. Yeah, he got my business right away. (laughs) Gail invested in that fund. She just didn't know at what cost until someone pointed it out to her. It was a neighbor. I had gone down the street and was like, hey, you know, we're doing this for our kids and blah, blah, blah. And they said, well, can we look at any of that information that you have? And I said, sure, let me go get it. And they went right to the back where it was in the finest print at the bottom. They said, wow, you're like paying a lot for this. And I said, no, I'm not. And they said, yeah, 8%. And that was, that was crazy. For the privilege of getting into the stock market, Gail had paid an 8% fee. At the time, this was standard. It was just the start. To stay in these mutual funds, investors kept paying fees, usually about 1% every year, to pay for the portfolio managers who picked their stocks. So everybody got their cut before I got my cut. And wow, you know, that was a great education for me. Gail got out of that mutual fund. But she was kind of at a loss about what to do next. She couldn't find a way to invest without paying high fees. And then, in the late 90s, some internet research turned her on to our first disruptor, a guy who would make it cheaper than ever for the gales of the world to invest. His name was Jack Bogle. Jack Bogle was the founder of the Vanguard Group, one of the biggest investment companies in the world. He was a dapper, jowly man, a straight talker, and he hated how expensive it was for people like Gail to invest in the stock market. Jason interviewed Bogle many times over the years. Jack Bogle was bothered by the fact that investing had been the province of the wealthy elite. He didn't like that you were supposed to be upper middle class or wealthy if you were going to be able to participate in the markets at all. And he would get very agitated about the way the financial industry was taking too much of investors' money away from them. And he would frame things in terms of good and evil. When Bogle would talk about this stuff, what did he sound like? He sounded a lot like a preacher talking about the end of the world. (laughs) (laughs) I I think sooner or later, fund investors will see the light. I think the industry's got to adjust to a different era. Uh, The fees are too high, and that's, that's all there is to that. The fees are too high. That was Bogle's message. And he would fight those fees by encouraging people to invest differently, to put their money 
in index funds. A stock market index fund is a portfolio of all the stocks in a given stock market index. So, say I have an S&P 500 index fund. That fund includes stocks for every company in the S&P. The idea is that the index fund acts as a mirror, reflecting the ups and downs of the overall stock market. If the market goes up, my index fund goes up. If it goes down, my index fund goes down. This was a radically different approach to investing. Traditionally, the way to invest was by picking stocks of individual companies and hoping that those stocks go up. But Bogle's view was that trying to pick stock market winners was a fool's errand. You know, why try to pick winners when you know if you own the entire market, the winners will be in there? And I used to joke with Jack Bogle that his idea of index funds was a lot like a commercial for Prego spaghetti sauce on TV. This commercial ran in the 80s. In it, a father and son debate the finer points of tomato sauce. After a whole semester of college food, ooh, homemade spaghetti sauce. No, Tommy, this is Prego. Sauce from a jar? Well, what about all that great stuff mom puts in her homemade sauce? It's in there. And he says onions, you know, carrots, peppers. Herbs and onions and garlic? It's in there. Well, what about homemade taste? Look, professor. It's in there. It's in there. It's in there. And so an index fund is kind of like a jar of Prego spaghetti sauce. If it's in the market, it's in the index fund. Index funds were cheap. Usually, mutual funds have to pay fancy money managers to pick stocks for their portfolios. But with index funds, there were no stocks to pick, no fancy portfolio managers to pay. So Bogle's overhead was low. And he made index funds even cheaper by doing something unheard of in the financial industry. He made his company Vanguard a nonprofit. That was really Bogle's genius idea. And the simplest way to think about it is Vanguard is an investing commune. It's sort of this strange, almost socialist form of organization at the very heart of American capitalism. All this meant that when Gail Cox eventually took her money out of those old-school funds and put it into index funds, her fees were super low. How much did it cost you to invest the Bogle way? Well, the fees on $10,000 is 0.04, so about $4 for every $10,000 you put in. It's so low. The upside of index funds is that they were dependable. But they were not exciting, like picking stocks. Investing in index funds, Gail would never feel the thrill of being in the right stock at the right time, watching it go to the moon. She would never get rich quick. The idea was to get rich slow, patiently riding the market's ups and downs for decades. And that was fine with Gail. Slow and steady felt doable to her. You know, money in general is such an emotional topic for so many people, and especially women. Unfortunately, society kind of tells women that we're not smart at math, we can't figure out finances, and for many people, especially of my age and older, the spouse, the husband, was expected to do all the finances. When I finally figured out how to invest using Jack Bogle's way, I was so empowered. I realized I can do this. I can figure this out. And for Gail and her husband, Index funds worked. She says she feels good about her plans for retirement. 
and her husband retired at age 61. It took a while for people to catch on to the Bogle way. But by the 2010s, Vanguard and Bogle's cheap and easy funds had taken off. Vanguard was managing trillions of dollars of investors' money for minuscule fees. And Jason says that forced the entire financial industry to change. Bogle's competition began offering their own index funds, also at low fees. Once Vanguard made mutual fund investing, particularly index fund investing, as close to free as you could possibly get, it did end up putting pressure on all other areas of the financial markets to get costs down. And there was actually a term for it. People called it the Vanguard effect, which is if Vanguard competes with you sooner or later, you have to compete not just on quality, not just on service, but on price. And if you don't, Vanguard will destroy you. The cost of investing just about everywhere dropped precipitously. From 1975 to 2019, Jason estimates it went down 90 to 95%. As costs fell, the number of regular people jumping into the market went up. Remember how in the 70s, only about a quarter of American families were in the stock market? Today, it's more than half. When Bogle died two years ago, he left behind an investing industry transformed. Investing was cheaper and easier than ever, for more people than ever. But Bogle's work to democratize the financial system, it wasn't the end. It was a beginning. As you were kind of sitting in the middle of the GameStop maelstrom, were you thinking of Bogle? Yes, I was. You know, often revolutionaries are shocked at the way the world adopts their ideas even better than they originally intended. You know, Jack Bogle drove the financial industry to the point where investing has become almost cost-free. That has made the whole GameStop revolution possible. I mean, that's not what he had in mind, but it is the ultimate logical consequence of what he did. Bogle democratized investing, but for a very specific kind of investor. He did it for the long-term, get-rich-slow investors, the people saving for retirement, the Gales. But another pair of entrepreneurs was about to expand on Bogle's legacy, and they'd throw open the doors to the markets to a very different kind of investor. Not the get-rich-slow kind, the get-rich-quick kind, the GameStop investor. Coming up... Robinhood. This episode is brought to you by Citizen M. There's no better feeling than finishing work for the day, sipping an ice-cold soda and nuzzling down into a Citizen M bed. Recharge your brain and batteries at Citizen M Hotels. They're in the tech cities. Menlo Park, Miami, Austin, New York, San Francisco, where people like you work, sleep, and play. Book now at citizenm.com slash the journal. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging 
so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. The year was 2013, and investor Howard Lindzen remembers taking a meeting in the Bay Area. He was intrigued by a pitch he'd gotten for a new startup. I'd flown up, as I tend to do to, when I'm very interested in something, because I sense that I have to meet the founders. I don't have much time to decide. Those founders were Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bot, the serial entrepreneurs behind a new trading app called Robinhood. I remember them both showing up at the meeting wearing Google Glass. I really thought it was kind of stupid, Google Glass. That was probably not in their favor. What was in their favor was the idea. The founder's app promised to make trading and investing easier than ever. They had designed this interface of being able to just tap, swipe, and buy a stock. Instead of picking up a girl, you could buy a stock. And you could do it for free. It was Tinder for the stock market. It was Tinder for the stock market. But you can't get rejected. You know, if you have money in your account, you uh, get a stock. What did you think? I said, this is a billion-dollar company. I immediately looked at them and said, I'm in for $100,000. You know, if you can build this, they will come. Bot and Tenev had sensed an opportunity. Because of Bogle, long-term investing was now cheap, easy, and accessible. But stock trading? Not so much. By the 2010s, individual investors could trade stocks online. But the websites were clunky, boring, and intimidating especially for novice traders. And investors still paid a fee for every trade they made, usually about 10 bucks, which made no sense to the Robinhood founders. Here's Bot in a 2018 interview. Having worked uh, previously in finance, Vlad, who's my co-founder and I, had, had kind of asked the question of why does this cost so much? And we'd, we'd basically figured out that that was an artifact of the days gone by before markets had become electronic, and we're like, we're pretty sure we can make this free. So in a Bogolesque move, they did. When Robinhood launched in 2014, users could buy and sell stocks commission-free. The companies said they did it to remove systemic barriers that kept everyday people out of the market. But commission-free trading wasn't even Robinhood's biggest innovation. Its biggest innovation was making stock trading fun. Bot and Tenev brought a Silicon Valley aesthetic to their app. The colors were bright. The lines were clean. It felt more like Facebook than Fidelity. And that was on purpose. Robinhood's head of design has said that they wanted the app to feel different from other brokerages. They wanted it to feel delightful. An ad Robinhood put out last year really captures the vibe. In it, a young guy sits at the dinner table while his dad drones on about whatever. A lot more productive, and I was right. It is so comfortable, I feel like I can sit there. All of a sudden, there's a burst of green confetti. The guys just made a trade. A new kind of investor is changing things up with an app that's changing the way we do money. Join us. On Robinhood, you could trade anywhere, at any time. At dinner, at a coffee shop, at work. Trading on Robinhood was fast, free, and fun. Maybe too fun. 
Robinhood's critics have argued that the app's design subtly nudges people to make more and riskier trades. They say the app turns investing into a game. Robinhood has denied this. In a statement, a spokesperson said that the company is, quote, proud to have built a simple, elegantly designed platform that's brought new people to the stock market. One of the people attracted to Robinhood's elegantly designed platform was Chris Maresca. He discovered Robinhood last year. Going to Robinhood, I felt like it was really easy to trade. I felt like trading felt more fun. The color schemes, the user interfaces on on Robinhood was just a lot better, in my opinion. In many ways, Chris Maresca is the prototypical Robinhood user. He's young, 24, and a guy, with a good job and some money to burn. He says trading on Robinhood felt instant. Because they were like, oh yeah, like, buy five shares, boom, you bought them. You know what I mean? That's it, right? And then if it's like, okay, how much money do you have? I have $1,000. Okay, buy $1,000 of Apple, boom. You know what I mean? It's not like, I want to buy 10 shares. It's like, how much money do you have? Let's, like, you know what I mean? Robinhood was so easy to use, it gave Chris the confidence to try something new. Options trading. Options are a high-risk, high-return trading strategy. When you make an options bet, you're saying you think a specific stock will hit a specific price by a specific date. If you're right, you can make many times your initial investment. But if you're wrong, you lose everything you put in. You get zero. Chris knew that options were risky, and he'd always been a little too nervous to try them on his old brokerage. But on Robinhood, he says, options felt different. They felt simple. He filled out the questionnaire the app requires to start trading options, and he got approved. When you apply for options trading on Robinhood, instantaneously, you're able to do it literally whatever you want to do. Did you feel like you just got handed, like, the keys of a very expensive Bro, yeah. sports car? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Or, like, imagine, like... Like your dad buys a Porsche and the keys are hanging there and you're like beat up car sitting next to that Porsche and he's like, don't drive it, but I'm going away for six months. Like that's really how it felt. You know what I mean? Like I felt like the possibilities were limitless. One of Chris's very first options plays was on an electric truck company called Nikola. Last September, Nikola got into some trouble. An investment research firm called Hindenburg claimed that the company had lied about the state of its technology. It also claimed that Nikola had faked a promotional video. The video showed one of Nikola's trucks seemingly driving down a desert road, backed by dramatic music. And so the viewer would assume, hey, Nikola has a vehicle that's not in production, but works, right? Well, the Hindenburg report comes out, and they say the truck didn't work. And what Nikola did was they towed the semi up a hill, and they let it go. Nikola fought the report. It said the claims were false, though the company did admit that in that video, the truck was rolling downhill. Regardless, this was not great press for Nikola. Chris felt pretty sure that the company's stock would plummet. And so he made an options bet. Chris says he bet 200 bucks that Nikola's stock price would fall below 20 bucks a share within a week. And at first, it looked like he'd be right. Of course, Nikola crashed after that report. Could say it rolled down, rolled down the hill. <laughs> it rolled downhill from there. 
But the stock price didn't roll down quite enough. Chris had been right that Nikola's stock would fall. But not how far or how quickly. And with options, that stuff matters. His bet was totally wiped out. He lost every dollar he put in. Which in this case, he says, was fine. It wasn't that much money. And he still trades options. But stories like Chris's show that democratizing investing, it can be a double-edged sword. Thanks to Robinhood, investors like Chris now have access to tools they never had before. They're trading for cheap, on their phones. They don't need a fancy broker or Wall Street expertise. If they want to take a risk, they can. And they are. I've talked a lot about the Reddit forum Wall Street Bets in this series. That forum is full of screenshots of risky options bets, showing huge, life-changing gains and equally huge losses. It cuts both ways. And for better or worse, more people are getting access to those powerful investing tools. Years ago, Bogle got so successful, he forced change on the entire investing industry. Now Robinhood is doing the same thing. Wall Street Journal reporter Peter Rudiger covers Robinhood. So when they started, they were the only big brokerage to offer commission-free trading. About two years ago, all of the other big ones followed suit. So Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade, E-Trade, all of them announced that they were getting rid of commissions. And I think they would not have done that had it not been for Robinhood. Call it the Robinhood effect. So today, it's much easier to buy and sell a share of stock and much more inexpensive, not even at Robinhood, but across the industry than it was even three or four years ago. In some ways, Bogle and Robinhood's revolutions were very different. Jack Bogle preached a gospel of getting rich slow, buy and hold. Robinhood made jumping in and out of stocks as simple as tap, swipe, buy a stock. But both had thrown open the door to new generations of investors. And some of those investors were about to force Wall Street to take notice and take cover. It seemed like a social movement at the time where, you know, the kids were fighting back against the boomers. The losses were just mounting. I was down $10 million and it didn't feel very good. That's next time on To the Moon. This show is part of the Journal podcast, which is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. I'm your host, Annie Minoff. Our producers are Josh Sanburn and Chris Neary. Our associate producer is Willa Rubin. We were edited this week by Katherine Brewer, Gerard Cole, Ryan Knudsen, Kate Leinbaugh, and Annie Rose Strasser, with help from Colin Campbell, Charles Farrell, Pia Gudkari, Anthony Galloway, Martin Kessler, and Lydia Polgreen. Special thanks to Jeff Rogo and Josh Sanburn for all his help on this episode. Our engineer is Griffin Tanner. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from Katherine Anderson, Marcus Begala, Audio Network, Epidemic Sound, and Extreme Music. Show art by Emil Lendoff. Fact-checking and research by Nicole Pasolka. Thanks for listening. The Journal Daily Podcast will be back on Monday. We'll be back with the next episode into the moon next Sunday. 